Welcome to the Unrest Podcast. This is Carter Coyle. I'm Madeline Green. And I'm Caitlin Stancil. So how's everybody doing? Uh, fair fair <laughs> to partly. <laughs> As my mom would say, fair to partly cloudy. Oh, <laughs> well, it is partly cloudy and raining here. It is a yucky day. It is. But it's Friday. So Yes. As y'all know, I started the day off rough thanks to baby. Oh yeah, tell us about that. Well, I've been really obsessed with lemonade this week and it just <laughs> tastes so good. And I've been trying not to drink too much because I didn't want to get acid reflux. But I, so I've been mixing it with water. But even so, I've probably had more than a gallon of lemonade and oh, gosh. Um, maybe more. And this morning I was making breakfast and the smell was really bad. And then I think all the acid hit and I just threw up everywhere all over the bathroom, peed my pants. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just be real with you because anyone who's been pregnant probably, I hope has peed their pants. I don't know. It's like, you have no control. And my oh, husband right. started a new job. So I was home alone. So then I felt extra bad for myself. Like, oh, I'm sick and I'm alone. This isn't fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, this really sucks. <laughs> So I'm going to tell this story that happened yesterday because it was, it's kind of intriguing. So I got off work around like 730 and I was driving home. And so I got on the road where our house is and there is this police officer. First thought, you know, crap, am I speeding? And uh, well, then he's like flagging me down and I'm like, Okay. So like I come to a stop and I roll down my window and he was like, have you seen a little boy on a bicycle around here? And I'm like, no. What? Whoa. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, no, I haven't. And I came from that way and he's not that way. I didn't see him. So I thought like, gosh, I hope like he's not missing or anything like that. Well, then I get home and I was just thinking about it. So I told Matt and he was like, oh my gosh, did the kid have flip flops on? And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, I did see a kid on our road on a bicycle and it just scared me to death. And I was like, I didn't really know what to do. He was, I was like, should I call them? And Matt did see him like probably 30 minutes before I got home and saw the cop. But I was like, I don't know what to do. So wow. I didn't do you should have called 911 and told them. They were already looking for him on that road. That's yeah, but true. they could have known like what direction he was going in, where time he was frame. in time. Yeah. Wow. You These really are the kind of clues that families are always asking people to call in. Nothing is ever too small. You really yeah. screwed that investigation. I did. <laughs> you can call today. Well, I asked Matt, I said, should I call? And he was like, well, it was a good like 30 minutes to an hour ago when I saw him. So they already knew he was on this road. It's not like I could tell him anything else. Well, they Maybe. could say, well, what was he wearing if they didn't have a great description and you knew flip-flops, you know? Yeah. That's true. Maybe you could call the non-emergency line today and ask if they found the kid. And if not, you had some info. I'll try that. I mean, it might seem like small details, but I mean, have you ever seen forensic files? No detail is too small. Caitlin, no, that's That's what I thought. But that's why I asked Matt and he told me no. That doesn't surprise me. (laughs) 
<laughs> Listen, we Caitlin and I have solved many a murder based on a flip-flop sighting. I mean, if he's missing and they didn't know what shoes he was wearing and now they're finding flip-flops on True. the road. Wow. That could mean he was abducted and his flip-flops. That would be so sad. Him. I want you to call just to figure out what the hell happened. I know. Will they tell you if you call? Maybe. So. They'll probably give you some basics. Just call and say, I don't know who I don't even to- know what to call. Hey, I'm calling on behalf of the Unrest Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I'll, do I call 911? No, they, Google like um, whatever emer- whatever county, county non-emergency police number. I love how earlier we were all like, oh, we have nothing to talk about. And then Madeline tells us this crazy story. <laughs> She's like, oh, wait, I have a little something, a missing child on my street. Jeez. Well, like, I don't even know if it was a missing child because the guy wasn't like frantic. Like he was just like super calm about it. Like, did you see a kid on a bike? They're always like that at first until it's been three days and the kid's still missing, you know? Yeah. How far out are you guys? Are you guys on like well water or normal water? So like we're on normal water, but like Matt's family's on well water. Well, speaking of wells... (laughs) (laughs) oh i did not catch that that was a good one that was a good one my story today is about a well an infamous well i'm taking us to the big apple new york city which i love the city and i have several friends who live there and were not aware of this story so i thought it'd be a fun one to share with them too and it dates back to the turn of the century the turn of the 19th century so in 1799 heading into the year 1800 so the story is about a woman named julie elma elmore sands and she goes by elma what a name say it one more time julie elma elmore sands oh so julie elma who goes by elma she lived at a boarding house in New York that was owned and run by her cousin, who I think she was pretty close to. They were besties, it sounds like. And so the night that Elma disappeared, she actually had told her cousin, hey, I'm heading out for the night. Um, she was dressed in her finest coat and a fur muff, you know, to keep her hands warm. It's December in New York. I'm sure it's freezing. And she confessed to her cousin that she was going um, to meet her boyfriend and that they were secretly going to get married that night or that at least she, that's what she was hoping. So kind of a, a romantic December night. Well, the problem is she never came home. And her cousin said, you know, when she wasn't home by the next morning, she already knew something was wrong and started raising the alarm. And about two days later, somebody found a fur muff floating in the Manhattan well. And the Manhattan well was fairly newly built. It was just a water well in um, what is now Soho in New York today at Green and Spring Streets. And at the time, this was in an area called Lispinard's Meadow. And one article I found said it was a popular destination for local sweethearts to visit in the winter. So it kind of makes sense that maybe she was meeting her boyfriend there. But, you know, what happened from that point? Did he do something? Did someone else do something to her? So there the mystery begins. And then a couple days later, they retrieved her body from the well as well. Mm. I know. So she had bruising and 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 a cracked skull. And so what they think happened is she was strangled unconscious and then thrown down the well. Her skull was cracked and then she 
was unconscious and ended up drowning in the water. My goodness. So pretty violent. And people were drinking from this water? I don't know. Good question. Icky. So I don't know. It was about, it was four, um, well, no, it was more than four days because it was, I think it was December 22nd. She disappeared and then they actually retrieved her body January 2nd of the new year. So it was, it was a while. Um, And of course it was widely suspected that her boyfriend and the guy she was courting, his name was Levi Weeks. And everybody thought that it was him who was the murderer. So um, he lived at the same boarding house apparently on Greenwich street and Uh, again the cousin said this is the last person she was supposed to go meet i heard her leave at like 8 p.m to go meet him and then never came back weeks just a little bit about him levi weeks was a carpenter and he also conveniently for him being accused of murder was the brother of a very successful new york city builder named ezra weeks and ezra had lots of connections plenty of wealth so obviously could help him afford the most prominent lawyers in town which i'll get to in a second so uh, elma's family was distraught as you can imagine they they were convinced that weeks was guilty to the point that they actually distributed pamphlets about him being guilty to everyone and put her coffin outside the boarding house um to shame levi and basically try to force him to confess but he did not Uh, This is where things get a little interesting and start mixing with uh, U.S. history here. So Weeks was charged with murder. And again, his brother was able to afford these fancy lawyers for him. He was defended by none other than, drumroll, Alexander (laughs) Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Oh, I know. And apparently, and I just watched Hamilton for the first time recently, and I don't remember this exact song, but supposedly in the musical the song nonstop refers or references this trial. Um, however, the date is changed a little bit and um, it sounds like it's kind of, it's, it's not a hundred percent accurate, but it is referenced. So th- you, you've got Hamilton big shot lawyer who actually owed um, Ezra, the brother, a bunch of money. And Ezra said, if you'll defend my brother, I'll forgive all your debts done. And then Aaron Burr too. So um, this was actually the the first murder trial in the United States where they have a recorded transcript for for it. And I saw that referenced in Wikipedia and several other articles. So and by recorded, I'm not talking about like a video or audio recording, obviously, but where they had stenographers in the courtroom and took an exact account of every word that was said. And so it was kind of compared to you know, the OJ Simpson trial that everybody in town was hanging on to every word that was reported every day. So it was really followed and by the public. Supposedly witnesses, and this all came out at trial, supposedly they had witnesses who saw Elma with Ezra Weeks the night of the disappearance. And then another witness says that they saw Weeks measuring the well the Sunday before the murder. <gasps> Seems hmm. seems like a red flag. Suspicious. <laughs> He's kind of suspicious. There was there was. Also- See, that might have been a detail that someone walking by would be like, "Oh, I don't well, need to call." He probably just works this. for the well company. It's fine. Don't make me feel terrible. <laughs> I want to quit this and call them right now. We'll be um, done shortly. <laughs> So, yeah, that seems like kind of a, a, you know, caught red-handed kind of thing. You're measuring the well like, oh, she's about 5'3". This should do just fine. Um, And then 
there was also some speculation that maybe Elma was pregnant and that that's what made him mad and wanted to kill her. But apparently there was an autopsy that showed she was not. So we can just. So like, what is the motive? Why? I don't, that, that I don't know and never really came across. Um, Maybe it was that she went out that night convinced they were going to get married and he didn't want to, he was like, no, I'm nowhere near that point. And things escalated. Who knows? But the public was um, pretty outraged and convinced that it was weeks for whatever reason. Um, Yet the sensationalism of this whole trial, these powerful attorneys that they hired, um, even the judge, and uh, you know, I think trials were a little loosey-goosey back then. I guess the judge directed the jury to, you know, that they should find him not guilty, which the judge doesn't do that anymore. Um, but apparently it took the jury only five minutes to deliberate before they acquitted Weeks and let him and said he he wasn't guilty. Um, public was outraged. They strongly disagreed with this with this verdict. Now, of course, it wouldn't be a ghost story without a little ghostly twist. Ghost. Um, Elma's cousin was so upset that she supposedly screamed out a curse at the defense team in the courtroom or outside the courtroom after he was acquitted and basically said, if you die a natural death, then there is no God or something along those lines. And I, Ooh. and I curse you to live a horrible life. Um, and, and that included, so, and so kind of part of the story is that those people who she cursed, it turned out did end up having pretty miserable lives. The judge disappeared soon afterwards with no, uh, sign of where he had turned out, um, weeks, the, the, accused murderer had to leave the city because everyone hated him so much thought he was guilty basically tortured and followed him around so he moved to mississippi sounds like he ended up having an okay life as an architect a builder married ended up getting having four kids but we all know hamilton and brewer had a rough um, time afterwards and supposedly kind of carried the burden of that curse and uh, had fears of it so i think that's kind of interesting so burr ended up killing hamilton and then burr lived a real bad life for killing such a popular person and ended up i think he died of a stroke later um so this curse seems to kind of still linger over the case now there was an alternative uh suspect option and hamilton and burr did present this at court and it sounds like this may be part of the reason why weeks got off um but they said that they suspected that the, there was another boarder, a creepy man who lived there named Richard Croucher, who he could not come up with an alibi for the night of the murder. And so they were pointing to him saying, this guy's way more suspicious. He disappeared again, left the city a year later, according to this article, was later found guilty of raping a child in Virginia, mm. fled to England before he could be sentenced and was later executed after he strangled a woman to death. Wow. So, you know, compared to the other guy who went off and married and got married and had four kids, this guy does seem like a pretty good suspect. So there's just lots of tragedy surrounding this whole case, starting with poor Elma's murder and ending with everybody involved basically being run out of town. Fast forwarding to more modern times, the well was closed up and built over 
And in the 1990s, a new restaurant was expanding its wine cellar and uncovered the well. And it had actually been buried under the building's foundation. So they dug it out and they were like, this is really cool. And I'm sure the more research they did realize that this is actually a very prominent uh, icon of cr uh, criminal history and kind of this murder mystery. So, and, um, from that point on, when it was unearthed again, uh, the male employees started feeling, started reporting like really uneasy feelings if they were in the cellar by themselves. Many of them said they felt like they were being followed or watched in the cellar. Apparently wine glasses and wine bottles would throw themselves uh, across the room and shatter all over the place. Waiters and other people who worked at the restaurants claimed that they would, if they went down there alone, they'd get locked in, even though nobody else was around. That was from the Secrets of Manhattan website. And one worker actually claimed that he saw a soaking wet woman in 18th century clothes um, in the cellar. Someone who lived, like, like, yeah, pretty obvious. That's it's like Elma. the ring. Yes. Oh, my gosh. So creepy. Um, and then another man who lived nearby said that the exact same description of a woman, a soaking wet woman in 18th century clothes emerged from his waterbed one day. Excuse me? <laughs> um, other people you have say, a waterbed? <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a, I mean, I'm going to assume this is still the 1990s, right? Uh, <laughs> I um, loved waterbeds. <laughs> <laughs> we all wanted one at some point, right? Um, some people say they still hear her screaming or begging for her life. And uh, now the, it's not a restaurant anymore. It's actually a clothing store called Koss. And it's, it's part of the H&M family. It's there in Soho. And I believe that you can, you can actually go to the well. I think they have it marked off. I'll share a picture. Mm -hmm. But I think you can see it. If you, you may not even know what you're looking at you know, when you go visit or the fact that it's part of this pretty cool history. So that's the well today. You can see it's kind of locked at the top. Um, Definitely big enough for a body. Oh, yeah. I mean, you did you really have to measure that? But it's kind of funny, like oh, these gosh, look. pictures of people, like there's clothing racks around it, and then there's a lady taking a picture, like, look, it's the Manhattan well. That's pretty cool. I mean, it, it, it's something that if you were shopping in that store, you probably would not notice unless you were looking for it because it's just part, it kind of looks antique -y. You would be like, oh, that's a cool, like, original chiminea or something. Yeah. Chiminea. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know that I would know that was a well if I looked at it. I would just think it was a yeah. very large chimney of some sort. And that costs place, I actually texted my friend, Netta, who lives in New York in Brooklyn, and I said, hey, do you know, are you familiar with this store? Because I'm mentioning it today, and she works in fashion, and I was like, I'm just curious if you know the store, and make sure I pronounce it right, like costs. And she said, no way, you know, I work, uh, she worked for a marketing campaign on the opening of that store and had no idea. And oh, she was like, wow. I really wish we'd like worked that into the PR promos and stuff. Um, but yeah, so there's all sorts of little hidden mysteries and, and ghosts of New York. So, I mean, it seems like Elma might still have a presence there. Wouldn't surprise me because what a tragic way to die. And um, there was just so much attention surrounding the murder and it, and it was really truly never solved. So yeah. a hundred years later, and even though there was a trial, we really don't have uh, any sort of justice or solution. So that's the story of the Manhattan well and poor Elma Sands. 
Well, since you mentioned New York City having all of this history and other haunts, I was reading this article from Curbed New York, and I love this line that they used. They said, the city that never sleeps is also the city that's full of ghosts. Ooh, the ghosts never sleep either. Yeah. I would assume that New York City was full of ghosts. (laughs) And it's just so like old and historic and... It's kind of cool how, you know, the well still exists, but they've built on top of it and all this stuff. And I feel like that kind of jostles the unrest a bit when you build on top of these areas that have had so much tragedy. So a part of the history that I'm talking about today, um, it kind of has a little bit of a ghost story with it as well. And a really prominent building in New York City, which is the Empire State Building. Mm. So... This story, um, you know, the Empire State Building, obviously it's very tall. It's very prominent in New York City and dozens of people have tried to attempt to commit suicide off of it. Um, Mm. And if you go there now, I think it would be nearly impossible because there are so many people up there. Um, They have these, you know, people that are watching out. And then also it's kind of like... um, I wouldn't say it's glass or plastic. I don't know. You would really have to do some work to try to jump off of it now because it's so like kind of barricaded up there. Um, But back in the 1940s, so around 1947, there was this woman named Evelyn McHale and she was 23 years old and she has a very famous suicide. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Um, Mm. But first I'm going to tell you, so her ghost, what people assume to be her ghost at least, is this woman that appears on the observation deck up there and is dressed in 1940s period clothing. She has that uh, red lipstick that they loved to wear back then. Mm. And um, she has apparently witnessed kind of muttering something about uh, the death of her fiance in Germany. And then she throws herself over the barrier there. Ooh, that's so sad. Yeah. Did he die in the war? That's what uh, one theory assumes, but there are a couple of other stories. You know, the person that they associate this ghost with, the story's a little bit different. Um, But again, she has a very famous death. One article refers to it as the most beautiful suicide. And I'm going to show you a picture in a minute about why. Uh, And that picture is kind of what is so famous about her suicide. Um, A photography student actually snapped a photo of her and where she landed Mm. about four minutes afterwards. And it's just kind of stuck around in pop culture. And it was so intriguing and interesting looking that people just kind of latched onto this photo of her. I can absolutely picture it in my head, but I have, I never knew anything about it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Wait, I can't picture it. You can't, you'll recognize it. Okay. You'll see it. Yeah. I bet. Um, so just to kind of go back a little bit about her history, her name was Evelyn McHale. She was, um, a bookkeeper there in Manhattan and like I said, her story is a little different than, than the kind of ghostly figure that they associate with her, but um, she had met her fiance, Barry Rhodes, there in Manhattan, 
And the story goes that before she killed herself and jumped off the Empire State Building, she had gone to visit him in Pennsylvania. And he had claimed after she had died that everything was fine. You know, there wasn't really any clue that she was going to do this. Um, But then the morning of her death, she arrived at the observation deck there at the Empire State Building. She took her coat off. She placed it neatly on the railing. And then uh, she left behind a very short note. Mm. So I'm going to read that little note to you. So this article has a little bit of what the note said. And this article came from allthatsinteresting.com. Yeah, very authoritative. (laughs) (laughs) So it says, I don't want anyone in or out of my family to see any part of me. Could you destroy my body by cremation? She questioned. Uh, She says, I beg of you and my family don't have any service for me or remembrance for me. My fiance asked me to marry him in June. I don't think I would make a good wife for anybody. He is much better off without me. Tell my father I have too many of my mother's tendencies. Oh. So oh my gives, God, that's so sad. I know. That gives a little insight to kind of how she was feeling, I guess, before she uh, killed herself. But it doesn't give specific details about why she was feeling so... Depressed or... Yeah, depressed and, you know, like she no longer wanted her life to go on. Um, But another interesting thing that that article said is her dying wish was that no one would see her body, but then there's this photo that now lives on decades later. Literally everything she did not want. Yes. So I'm going to describe the photo to you a little bit and then I'll show it to you. In it, she looks very peaceful. So when she jumped off the Empire State Building, what she landed on was the top of a United Nations limousine. Oh, paint the picture for you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, she's kind of nestled into the crumpled metal and she's facing the sky in the photo. Uh, she looks peaceful, like she could be sleeping. Her ankles are uh, crossed and she has her gloved hands. One of them is kind of resting on her chest and it looks like she's clutching this string of pearls that's around her neck. And uh, one description said, it looks like she's almost daydreaming, you know? Yeah. Um, And what happened is right after she had fallen about four minutes later, this photography student happened to be walking by and he snapped this incredible photo. I'm going to share my screen with you now so I can show you. So how far did she fall? The 86th floor observation deck. Oh, hell. Yeah. That's a long way. Quite a ways. You (laughs) are not living that. Yeah. But so peaceful. You would never like- know because she doesn't look damaged. Yeah. If huh. that makes sense. That's crazy that you wouldn't just. Ugh. So this is her photo. <gasps> oh, yeah. Oh, wow. oh. I guess I was picturing it from above. I, it's funny how your mind does that. Yeah. So she's kind of like nestled into this car that's all crumpled around her. Um, her shoes are gone. I don't know if she mm. removed them beforehand or if they flew off when she fell. Uh, you can see her hand kind of holding the string of pearls there right at her chest and um, her ankles are crossed. So she's not like Jeez. So we, all yeah. mangled looking. It literally looks like she's just taking a relaxing <laughs> break on top of this car so you know, staring up into the sky. 
but she must have hit it with such force Force. because it's crumpled wow that's and that's really very bizarre um yeah i can imagine what mine would look like (laughs) yeah i know same (laughs) (laughs) nothing like this you know obviously that photo is very striking and it kind of sticks in your mind and i think that that's why it became so famous afterwards Um, I was reading down here that Andy Warhol actually used this photo in one of his prints called Suicide Fallen Body. Mm. Um, Original title. Yeah. And then her picture was also used on the cover of an album from someone. I don't know who this group is. Saccharine Trust. (laughs) And even Taylor Swift apparently had a reference to uh, this photo in her Bad Blood music video. Wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. So it's really kind of lived on after this. And I think Time Magazine gave it the uh, title, The Most Beautiful Suicide. Mm. So that's kind of how it's lived on under that title. You know, again, the Empire State Building is just this really iconic building in New York City and a really iconic death associated with it. Well, from one amazing picture to another, our real life haunt today, I got from a Facebook group I'm a part of. A man named David Colorado posted his story in a picture. And once I saw that picture, I knew I needed to contact him and see if I could share his story with the Unrest podcast. So take a listen. When I first shared this story and photo about a year ago, I had been waiting for a long time to share it. For ages, humankind has been searching for proof that the paranormal is real. Proof that the soul survives death. Well, this is your proof, and it's one heck of a story. My best friend Lynn and I woke up early. It was cool, overcast, and the smell of early spring was in the air. We packed the car with our newly purchased bicycles and then set off on a road trip to bike the Cape Cod Canal. Road trips are a standard fare for us and we have thousands of miles and memories under our belts. At the time, I was working as a psychic and medium and she spent most of the drive asking me for my psychic insight about her new relationship. It was Tuesday, March 29th, 2011. And this experience rattled me so much, I took a break from doing readings for seven years. After a wonderful bike ride, we decided to go for a late lunch at the Mezzaluna, a fantastic Italian restaurant. As soon as we walked into the building, my psychic sense was on high alert. This happens a lot to me, so I shrugged it off and began reading over the menu. Once we began eating, my psychic sense was overloaded. Something is here, I thought to myself. Psychically, I saw a man walk into the room right through the wall and sit down by the window. I immediately knew it was a ghost. Lynn, can I take your picture? I asked. If you take a picture of me eating, I will kill you, she replied. Sorry, I said as I snapped the picture. I showed her the photo and she was speechless. Now, I've roamed haunted forests, graveyards, and homes snapping pictures, and from time to time I get something good, but not like this. When our server returned with the bill, I pardoned myself for asking, I know this is going to sound crazy, but are you aware of a haunting here? She looked at me like I was crazy, and before she could reply, I added, I just took this picture, and there is something in it by the window over there. I showed her the photo, and she turned pale. 
Her face lost all expression. Can I show this to the owner? She asked. I said that he could come see it, but I was not going to give her my phone. She fetched the owner of the restaurant. He took one look at the photo and began to cry. That's dad. That was his favorite spot to sit. He went into great detail about his relationship with his father and how much he needed to see him again. He asked for a copy of the photo and of course I sent it. Time went by and I got a call from him. A prominent New England magazine wanted to use the photo and write a story on it. Of course I gave permission and a copy of that article and photo is hanging in the lobby of the Mezzaluna to this day. That experience changed me and it haunts me in a way. After a lot of soul searching, I started doing readings again, and I'm happy that I did. I hope this photo and story stirs something within you at the crossroads of wonder and belief. I hope that you will share this and it will find its way to whoever might need the possibility of proof of life after death and the comfort found within. Amazing story. Thank you, David, for letting me share that with our listeners. Also, if you guys want to get a reading done by David, he is booked through the end of November, a popular guy, but you can call him at 401-283-7639. That's 401-283-7639. And this is probably like one of the clearest photos like this that I've ever seen. And the fact that, yeah, you, they figured out who it was, it makes it a lot more real and less likely to be some, like, play on a shadow. Right. Love that. Nick says, Nick says after listening to last week's episode that I am too, that I am mean to Madeline. I was like, what? I am not. Is that true? That you're mean to me? Yeah. He goes, you're kind of rough. You're kind of hard on Madeline. I was like, I am not. We About all, what? I don't know. We all tease each other, but I'm like... Well, gosh, now you make me feel like a bully. No, I don't feel like you are. I was also like, also, Madeline would not put up with someone's shit if she thought they were being mean to her. No. (laughs) No, I I was like, Nick, you don't know anything. No. He doesn't know the dynamic of our friendship. (laughs) Yeah. I'd like to take this time to formally apologize to Madeline for being (laughs) so mean to her. Maybe he's talking about like when we talk about Papa and Union Grove. I think that's what he means. I think she knows that she lives in the the uh, rural area, in the Grove, in the y- the Yawtel or whatever Yaktel, Yaktel, <laughs> Yaktel. Yeah, I think he thought I was being mean. I'm like, she's the one who told us it's called Yaktel. <laughs> That is it for this episode of the Unrest Podcast, but we would love to hear from you guys and get more stories and pictures like this one. So just shoot us an email at the unrestpodcast at gmail.com. Caitlin's going to tell us about a phone number that we have. A new option. A new option that no one has used yet. So we would love for you to be the first. If you want to call into our voicemail line, it's 843-564-2101. Thank you so much for joining us. We love you all. Keep following. Keep listening. Unrest in peace.